Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. For those who are convinced that scientists are all dry as dust, Mr. Spock types, logical calculating machines who emphatically relegate any emotional sentiment they might somehow stumble upon to the very background of their lives. An encounter with University of Chicago theoretical physicist Rocky Kolb will soon set you straight. Because if there's one word that defines Rocky, it would have to be passion. Passion for research, passion for teaching, passion for writing, and passion to simply understand nature at its most fundamental level. I thought it would be great if you could talk a little bit about uh, your youth and how you got interested in, in mm-hmm. science, uh, how you got interested in physics in particular, and whether or not there were other scientific interests that you had when you were growing up. Yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, and um, probably 10 years old or so in the early 60s, middle 60s. and. In New Orleans, where I lived, which was probably, uh, in hindsight, not uh, an exclusive place to live, uh, air conditioning was very rare. Our house wasn't air conditioned, and uh, it it was hard to find a place that was air conditioned. So during the summer, the dog days, days, June, July, August, et cetera, we would uh, play baseball in the morning. And then, you know, noon, one, two o'clock, it was unbearable to be outside. It was unbearable to be inside. And the only building that I could walk to that was air-conditioned was a small branch public library. So to be cool, I went into the library. Literally. And I, that's right. <laughs> and so I, I didn't have much to do sitting in the library except to read. Uh, so it was a very small library, so I sort of systematically went about trying to read every book in the library. I, I, I didn't have anything else to do. And uh, when I got to the science section, of this little library. I remember the librarian coming over and pulling me away from the science section and saying, no, you want to go to the children's book section. So she would pull me and sit me down and show me the children's book section. And uh, I had already read those books. They didn't particularly interest me. But the science books, they were forbidden. Right. So she piqued your curiosity. She piqued my curiosity. And every time she wasn't looking, I would run over and get a science book <laughs> and then uh, put it and then put a, you know, one of these big golden books there. So I'd be reading science when she wasn't, when she wasn't looking. Like pornography. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. it would, well, I didn't know what pornography was in those days, but it was, it's still the allure of, uh, of something forbidden. And it turned out I really loved it. And the part that I liked, and really loved was the part were the parts about physics. So for some reason, the biology parts didn't uh, interest me or chemistry, but physics and uh, astronomy. So astronomy is sort of a, a common interest among small children, and physics maybe less so. But I was interested in sort of the nu- in, in nucleus. You know, what are things made of? The inner workings of things. 
So the smallest things that people knew about, and also the largest things in astronomy. And that sort of stuck with me. And, you know, I always, uh, I don't remember the name of the librarian, but I don't believe she's around anymore. Uh, but I should thank her somehow publicly for forbidding me to, it wasn't quite forbidding, but pointing me away from science books. No, 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 you shouldn't be reading those things. <laughs> It probably wasn't deliberate on her part, but maybe she affected other. I mean, were there, was there a whole generation of Louisiana-bred physicists <laughs> who were uh, looking for a cool place? <laughs> Not as far as I can see, and it was pretty lonely in the library. It's, I think most people would sleep during the after, take a siesta in the afternoon. I would go cool off in the library. So your interest was peaked then, and then you went to school. Was it fostered at school, or, or, or did you have to fight through indifference, or how did that work uh, once your interest was peaked in the library? Well, in uh, elementary school, I typically felt that in science and math, I knew more than the teachers, and, uh, and it, it really wasn't uh, interesting to me at all. So, but that, that was true of many subjects in elementary school. Uh, but, you know, it, it didn't, I, I just didn't pay attention and, you know, didn't have any problems with the, uh, with the classes. Um, high school was a little more challenging, but again, in science, I uh, didn't have any problem. And I also had the interesting, uh, math, mathematics didn't particularly interest me. So, you know, I was sort it, of it a... It didn't particularly interest you. Not, not, not at that time. So hmm. I was sort of a B student without any effort. But then when I started studying physics and started using mathematics, I then I became very interested in so it. So mathematics is a tool to, yeah, to, it was to a understand tool. physics. And, and then I realized, ah, this is why you use algebra and calculus and trigonometry. So I, I should back up a little bit and say my father did not have uh, much of a formal education, but he was interested in mathematics. And he had a lot of books on um, uh, code breaking, cryptography, and sort of abstract ideas in mathematics that I read and we talked about. So I was interested in, in the abstract ideas of mathematics, but you know, the everyday grind of you know, the multiplication tables, or as we called them in New Orleans, the gazintas, you know, eight, eight gazintas, 16 twice, you know, <laughs> that, that, that kind of, it, it was a New Orleans thing, the gazintas and, uh, you know, or even algebra. To me, it was uh, sort of drill and toil rather than, sure. um, rather than anything intellectually exciting. So I could catch, not because of the teachers or anything, but maybe through reading, I could catch the intellectual excitement of physics and astronomy, but I couldn't catch until I actually started using it, the intellectual excitement of mathematics. But other than the, your father's inspiration with, with respect to, to code breaking and to cryptography and all the rest of this sort of thing, did, did he have other Intellectual mathematical interests? I mean, where, where did the cryptography yeah. thing come from? Do you, do you know? Uh, so my, my father um, was, was an older uh, parent. Uh, his, his, he was, when he was 12 years old, his father died in the 1918 flu epidemic, uh -huh. in the Spanish flu. Yeah. And he was the oldest child. He was 12 at the time. And his mother told him, okay, now you have to support the family, you know, with four siblings. <sighs> so I can't imagine being... 12 years old and being told you have to support your mother and the family. Yeah. So he had to drop out of school. He later went and completed it at nine and things like that through really? high school and business school at nine, things like that. But, uh, you know, so he was put to work. That's a tragic so, story. Well, it, 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 in some ways it's a tragic story, but, you know, he was never resentful about it. Never resentful.
and he maintained these interests in presumably other things, but cryptography yes, was yeah. one of one so of those he, things. He, that he, although he didn't have uh, much of a formal education, there you know the house was full of books and and you know so he would read. Uh, we didn't have a television or a radio when I was a child. He would you know read Shakespeare, so I didn't have anything to do when I was you know even before starting school. So I started reading and. Well, it seemed to have worked out well. Maybe yeah, it should. Maybe it should be a social policy. Maybe it should be encouraged. And all right. That. Shut yeah. off the air conditioning. Go to the library. <laughs> get, get rid of the it TV. Forbidden <laughs> to, to study science. So you're. Um, so there, you talked about elementary school. There were no teachers who had any uh, significantly positive influence. Did that change at all when you were in high school? Yeah, Did I, you, I, had, you I had a great high school physics teacher, uh, and you know, after that, I knew I really wanted to do physics. And astronomy wasn't taught in uh, the school I went to. I guess it wasn't unusual. Astronomy is probably sure. not taught in many schools. Yeah. Actually, physics is probably not taught in many schools. But really? uh, I remember we did this stuff with uh, you know Newtonian physics and Kepler's orbit. Oh and yeah, Mars well, well and that, that, kind that of stuff. part so that, that, that part of it was taught, right? Yeah. Yeah. But certainly no cosmology in high school. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, so you were motivated by this, uh, or at least further motivated, by, mm -hmm. by, by this physics teacher in high school. And then you decided, at that point, I want to go to college and study sure. science. Uh, I thought science was, uh, in mathematics, by that time, were yeah. the easiest courses uh, in high school for me. So I said, well, I'll, I'll do something that's easy that I like. Yeah. So, so off you go, and when do you start becoming more and more interested in, in cosmology and astrophysics and, and these areas? Well, it, it's sort of a funny thing. I always had this interested interest in um, uh, what now might be called particle physics, which is called particle physics, and astronomy. Uh, but in, until recently, they, they were completely separate. So particle physics and astronomy, they, they did not have much of an overlap at right. all. So you know, as an undergraduate, I uh, took all the physics courses I can. Again, astronomy courses, I don't think I took, no, I did not take an astronomy course in college. Because astronomy then was more descriptive. And I wasn't really interested in the descriptive part of it. Finding constellations and things like that, to, to me it's fine, but it's not... Sure intellectually exciting to, uh, to sure. find constellations. That's like botany, right? Uh, right, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I decided, well, you know, I can't do astronomy. I can't do anything to do with astronomy. I will be a particle physicist. So I uh, went to graduate school at the University of Texas and worked um, for a particle physicist, a particle theorist, in the Center for Particle Theory. And um, so I early on realized that I wasn't cut out for experimental work, that I was more, you know, I enjoyed the mathematics and I found that easier than the experimental work, which, um, you know, I, I respected, of course, and appreciated it, but I found it sort of tedious. Um, of course, it's not, you know, if you do it for a living, but the way the labs were in, yeah. uh, in college and high school to me were, were sort of tedious. And I, I was impatient. So what does it mean? You know, I, I was interested more in the concepts and the sure. ideas than actually using my hand. But that was always, and I mean, at least for me, maybe a different experience. But the, the, um, part of it was that I was terrible in a lab as well. So, uh, or maybe not as well. Maybe you weren't terrible, but I was terrible. Uh, I, well, I, I, I wasn't so good. <laughs> <laughs> but there was always this, this thing I remember you get, you get faced with 
these facts in a standard model. There are three of these and mm -hmm. three of those and four of these. And, and, and you have, a, to me, it was a bit of a sense of, like I said, like botany almost, that you have these different classifications and you think, okay, well, that's interesting. But why this and why not that? What, what is actually the structure that's right. going on? And, and to me, the experimental labs, uh, this may be a, an indication of where I went, and maybe they weren't very good, but they were sort of almost cookbook. You know, you do this, you do this, you do this, right. measure this, and things like that. It's not quite the forefront it, of research. It, it wasn't it? the, to me, yeah, to me it wasn't the intellectual challenge of, you know, sitting back and trying to figure out how things work. Yeah. So theoretically, uh, so you I, were inclined I, yeah, in that particular yeah. direction. Right. Or rather, you were inclined in a theoretical direction. Right. Or I was disinclined <laughs> in an experimental direction. I, I, I don't think I, I'm, I would be, would have been very good at it. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, anyway, so I was in, uh, in college at the University of Texas, uh, in graduate school, and uh, started doing particle physics. And then, um, this was in the late 70s, oh, and about time. that time, uh, 77, 78, things like that, um, just by happenstance, uh, they became interested in neutrinos, and uh, could neutrinos have mass? Can there be any number of neutrinos? And my advisor uh, said, well, doesn't cosmology or astronomy say something about neutrinos? So this was a really great thing. He didn't know any cosmology. I didn't know any cosmology. I'd never taken a course in cosmology. Huh. So I'd never taken a course in astronomy or astrophysics. Just as a mechanism to investigate neutrinos. Right. right. Uh, I, I, I picked up astronomy on the streets, is, is what I tell people. <laughs> And so, so we sort of learned it together. And this was a, uh, he was a little bit faster than I was, but <laughs> uh, it was a great experience to, to learn something with, uh, with a mentor, with your advisor. Yeah. And I think this was a, a much better experience for me than uh, having the experience where the mentor already knows something about this subject and you just try to absorb it. It was it's really a learning experience. And you can see the, presumably the, uh, his level of honesty and openness yeah. and not knowing things right. and, and not pretending right. to, 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 yeah. to know. That's right. So it, it wasn't an advisor who already knew everything. Right. Um, you know, and he was honest that you know, we're learning this together. Let's figure this out. And, you know, we both made mistakes and figured this out. And he was almost always ahead of me. Occasionally I would, you know, pass him a little bit on this curve and I'd feel really good. But then he would get me on this straightaway, that type of thing. Um, so I, I, I did okay, and you know, we, we wrote some interesting papers. But at this time, cosmology was not considered respectable. Astronomy was something different, and actually particle physicists in particular had a, uh, disdain's too strong a word, but um, no respect, I guess. <laughs> I, uh, think so day, for, I think this date fits perfectly. For astronomers. So, so they considered astronomy as, uh, oh, it's just orders of magnitude. Nothing's rigorous. Uh, right. It's just... Hand-waving. Yeah, so. hand, right, it's, exactly. It's hand-waving. Yeah. And cosmology was even worse. Yeah. You know, who, who can, how can you say anything about the universe a second after the bat? Where's the experimental evidence? And in some sense, they hit a point. But I think it was one of these things that... Um, there was no, there were really no developments because it was thought not to be respectable. So no one really worked on it. So there were no developments. Right. Therefore, so it was not. Right. So it was sort of a circle. And yeah. I think there was an opportunity really to do do some things, 
uh, that we're just not taking advantage of because it wasn't thought to be a good thing to do. And in hindsight, if I had been intelligent, I would have said, well, this is a terrible career move or career idea to be interested in a field that no one cares about. Well, it turns out that you were, you were brilliantly prescient. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I'd like to say, no, I had it all figured out, but uh, it just worked out that way. So I, 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 I briefly touched on this, in fact, with my conversation with Paul recently, and uh, something I hadn't thought about, but this, the CMB was discovered in 60-something, 64, 64, right. 64, 65. And then there, there was this long time period before, it seems, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems that there was this long time period before people thought, hey, we can actually maybe do some experiment, look at this stuff a little bit more closely, look for in homogeneities, look for... Uh, and, and, it was quite a long time. Like it was almost what what you Kobe could probably count on maybe one or at most two hands the number of people who were really interested in the CMB. Uh, it, it, you know the observers who were interested. And in so the CMB. and so why do you think that is? Because I, I I also when I talked to Justin about this. So I uh, I don't I don't I don't have your level of experience obviously. But I remember when I was a graduate student there was very much this sense of cosmology, that was metaphysics, that was stuff staying away from. I remember there, there were a couple of these mathematics, there was Bianchi this and Bianchi that, they were sort of ruled right, out, ru right. done a long time ago, and well, we'll never be able to decide which one we're in, and there are the possibilities, and it's kind of like putting angels on the heads of pins, and no serious person works on that. Yeah. That was, that was yeah. my sense of, of, of the way it was. But now when I look back and I think, well, why didn't people take a closer look and say, hey, there is this CMB that's out there. Why don't we actually look at it more carefully? This could be really, really interesting. Yes. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it's sort of prejudice in the field that there was nothing to do there. And again, you know, smart people, it wasn't considered a respectable thing to do. It wasn't considered a good uh, career move, so people didn't do it. Mm. And even before the CMB was discovered, the CMB could have been discovered years before that. There were predictions and ideas mm. um, that no one either didn't, they did, either didn't know about it or didn't take it seriously enough. So in, it could have been discovered maybe 10 years earlier, five years earlier. It's a little bit depends upon the technology. Maybe even deliberately instead of by accident. Yes, that's right. That's right. Maybe, <laughs> maybe even deliberately. Uh, so, uh, it, and, and again, um, so this, in, in sort of in time frame, my PhD was in 78, yeah. uh, and I got, the P, I got my PhD, and um, the, the, then the usual thing is to take a postdoctoral position someplace. And I, I didn't think I would go into cosmology or astronomy or astrophysics. Even then? Even then. Yeah. Uh, and I received a couple of postdoc offers, um, all of them except one were sort of in, in the particle physics groups. Weak interaction, phenomenology, neutrino physics, things right. like that, but, but not astronomy and astrophysics. Of course, this was also a big, you know, there, it was an exciting time in particle physics yes, as well. Yes, the standard time. model was, yeah. was just emerging. Yeah. Maybe even before a, a few brilliant people, who I, you know, I was just a student at the time, knew that there was a standard model and could fit things together. I, it, it was beyond me. But uh, there was one offer from uh, a postdoctoral position at Caltech. And the person who led this group was Willie Fowler, Nobel Prize winner. And Willie Fowler is the person who, uh, his Nobel Prize was for the development and application of nuclear astrophysics. And this was something that was done. So the application of nuclear physics to 
astrophysics. Started, of course, with Beta's paper about how the sun shines in right. the 30s, then it picked up in the 40s and 50s, and maybe in the 1960s were the heyday of nuclear astrophysics. And Willie Fowler was at the forefront of that. Right. And uh, if you look at the postdocs and students Willie had at Caltech, you know, it's really just about everybody went through there. I mean, it was just amazing. And uh, so I'll, I'll just say one thing about Willie. Uh, something I learned from him, I didn't actually learn much physics from him, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but what I learned from him is something that's uh, sort of rare in the field, and that is to appreciate the work done by your students and your postdocs and your people. Uh, it's, it's, it's rarer than you might think it is to really appreciate and celebrate what your students and people who work for you or under you in some sense do. So how would he do that? Well, it was just a pride. Willie referred to us as his boys. Now, he, you know, he, he hired the first women at Caltech, but we were Willie's it, it boys. Was, it was the his rather yeah, than the yeah, boys. It was Willie's <laughs> boys. And when we did something, we would talk to him about it. He would get the biggest kick out of it and say, oh, that's wonderful. You know, tell me more about it and show real enthusiasm. He wasn't involved in the papers. He didn't really know the science of particle physics very much. But you know, he really loved it, and he instilled in me and many of the people who worked there really a pride and a, a sort of a family idea. We were Willie's boys. Is there still a sense of that even now? Do you do you? Have... Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, you know a group of us. Uh, uh, you know, Dick Bond is one of them. Right. Stan Woosley, uh, John Bacall was one of Willie's boys. Craig Wheeler. You know, it's just a long, long list of people, and uh, you know we we fondly remember him, and I'll. Uh, there's sort of one story at some conference someplace, a uh, bunch of Willie boys, Willie's boys were sitting around, his former postdocs and students, and there was a professor from another institution who was not one of Willie's boys, a senior professor. And uh, I won't mention his name, but he made a comment, something to the effect that, well, of course, you know, Willie did all these things because his postdocs and students were so good or something like that. And, you know, we're, we're sort of like, what did he do? You know, he just said, he was at Caltech, he just got great students and postdocs. And I, I, w I feared for his life. <laughs> you know, there were several of us who got red in the face and were going to strangle him, you know. So do you, do you look at that, or have you looked at that going forwards as an inspiration for you? Yes, when you're, yes. When you're it's thinking? definitely been an inspiration for me. And you know, we, I was the head of a group at Fermilab in theoretical astrophysics for many years. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is are the people who came through and how I think, even if I didn't work with them, I worked with many of them. Uh, I don't think some of them learned maybe some physics from me. I learned probably more from them than they learned from me. But uh, to have helped their career and celebrated what they've done, I think that's something that's rarer in science than you might imagine. Yeah. Have you ever gone to a conference where someone said, oh, Rocky Cole, what has he done? But he's just got good students and postdocs. I would hope my students and postdocs would get rid of the face. Me, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so I arrived at Caltech, and it was one of these uh, positions where you can do whatever you want. Yeah. 
So I, would, I went there and I said, well, I'm sort of interested in cosmology and astrophysics. I'm also interested in particle physics. Well, I'll take a few months, go to a couple of talks, talk to people and sort it out. Because, you know, I said, well, you know, now I'm a postdoc. I'm no longer a graduate student. I have to get serious. I have to choose a direction, you know, some, something to do in my career. Um, then about the first month or two I was at Caltech, there was a series of lectures given by a famous cosmologist, Alan Sandich. He was Hubble's colleague, Hubble student, sort of the, he carried on the, 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 the mantle of Hub, yeah. Edwin Hubble, yeah. the father of modern cosmology in, in, some, in some ways. And he gave a series, on, a series of lectures on cosmology. And I went to it. And this was old time cosmology, you know, old astronomy, all these uh, just the nomenclature and the number of graphs that he showed, which to me looked like random dots that he drew straight lines through <laughs> without error bars, <laughs> I thought was a, were just terrible. Um, so you thought this field So, so I said, forget it. <laughs> Nobody knows anything about cosmology. I, I, I give up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a particle physicist. Then a couple of weeks later, there was a lecture by someone at Caltech. I won't mention his name. I'll tell you off camera. Okay. Uh, on string theory. String theory. This was 1978 or 79. I think I have, probably have an idea. The very early days of string theory. Yeah. And then after the lecture, Murray Gilman got up. Yeah. You know, the great Murray Gilman and said something to the effect is, this is the future of particle physics. So I thought to myself, cosmology wasn't that bad. <laughs> so I said, well, room at the bottom. It, 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 you know, th this is not modern string theory. This was string theory and sort of the This was strong lowest. interaction stuff, right? Yeah. Well, it was sort of strong interaction stuff. And, and, but the idea that I think Murray Gilman saw it could have been, it had the potential to be a fundamental theory and really apply to gravity. People were just starting to realize that. Yeah. But it was so technical and I thought so, so not crazy, but I said, well, cosmology wasn't so bad. So if, if, if that's what I have to do to be a particle physicist, sure. I'll be a cosmologist. Well, it was still in four dimensions then too, right? Uh, no, it was in um, it? it was in twenty six dimensions oh, right, or ten dimensions right, right. or something right. like that. It's in, in some some other number of dimensions. Okay. And I thought, wow, I'll be a cosmologist. And you know, so but luckily I was in in an environment as a postdoc where um, I, I could do that. Yeah. And also, the career path in those days I think was easier or less structured than the career path now. Hmm. Uh, so I ended up. You know, getting positions and doing okay, but there you could try different things. And now I see uh, graduate students and postdocs who are focused. This is what I want to do. This is my career path, and they want to follow that. You know, looking through the soda straw. This is what they want to do. So there's a sociological element to this uh, in, in terms of uh, tactically choosing a program to work on or, or following the leader in terms of what they think might be the most popular, trendy, whatever you want mm -hmm. to say. But there's also a factor of general broad-mindedness and experience to a wide variety of different areas. I mean, you, you were talking about uh, your experience uh, as a student and, uh, and as a postdoc in particle theory, and then you uh, 
uh, and then you went to various lectures. You thought about cosmology, astronomy, Alan Sandwich, all the rest of this kind of stuff. Um, better than string theory, so I've got to go over there. But that's a fairly wide gamut. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it seems like that has been beneficial to you and your perhaps your colleagues or people of your generation to have a fairly wide perspective. Right. As right. you know, I was just talking to Paul, and he's interested in a wide variety mm -hmm. of things and has done work in a wide variety of things. Um, is, would you say that that's a general concern, not only in terms of uh, how many postdocs are available, blah, 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 but just in terms of the, the broad-mindedness of the physicists themselves, in yes. terms of their ability to yes. solve problems, because they need to to solve a problem, you think it's helpful to have experience in a wide variety of different well, domains. That, that's really helped me. My, you know, my background and we started, this field started around me, yeah. I had a part in it, of particle physics and cosmology. Right. So if I had written an application for a postdoc or for a job saying, I want to do particle cosmology, people would not have known how to read it. You know, yeah. it would have ended yeah. up immediately in the wastebasket. Yeah. And it, in the old days, it used to, in the old days, in the 70s, and even up to the 70s and 80s, it used to be that someone like Willie Fowler could write a letter and say, uh, I, of course, I never saw any letters he wrote for me, but this guy's really smart. You should hire him. I don't know what he's going to do, but, but you should hire him because he's really smart. Right. And, you know, it was, there, that was that advantage to what has had many other disadvantages and should be criticized with sort of the old boy network. Yeah, but um, but I th so th there's the idea of how one gets hired and influence and all the rest of that. But I think that can be paired away from the sense of being uh, not to be too uh, too quaint, but a, a broad-minded problem solver, mm -hmm. as it were, right. as opposed to someone who necessarily has to be a specialist in area A or area B. Um, so well, it, it's when we hire people, often we do narrow searches. Yeah. We're looking for someone who works in 12.3 uh, dimensions on this problem and applying this technique. Yeah. And instead of being taking a broad, so I, I always try to encourage people to do broad searches. And occasionally, don't do stupid things, but take a chance, roll the dice. Yeah. You know, and uh, get somebody who looks like they're changing fields and uh, or starting in a field that's not very popular. And when you work in a new field, there aren't senior people around to write letters and appreciate it right. and, and things like that. Right. But if you just look at the field, as listening to you as you're talking, so maybe this is hindsight being 2020 or I'm being simplistic or what have you. But so Willie Fowler, uh, very accomplished, heyday nuclear astrophysics, 1960s. And then you think, okay, 1970s, standard model starts to get put mm -hmm. into place and so forth. If you don't know anything about this, you can say, okay, nuclear particle, particles are coming into play. You can kind of predict that, that using particle physics in cosmology yeah. or in astrophysics is going to start happening. I think right? Willie saw it. I think Willie saw it. You don't need it. to be a genius to, to, to see Well, this. hindsight is 2020, of yeah, course. Yeah, sure. But, but, but Willie was very excited about it, and uh, he used me to teach him the standard model. Yeah. to teach him the Weinberg-Salam model. Yeah. He wasn't about to go to Dick Feynman and Murray Gelman and say, explain this to me. Sure. Uh, but he, he could come to me, you know. And, and again, it's just like Dwayne Dyke is my advisor. You know, he wasn't afraid to say, well, I don't understand this. Explain this to me. So you started going into cosmology. And 
how did your how did your interest peak, and what what sorts of uh, what sorts of developments were you excited about contributing to, and how did your appreciation and understanding of what has now come to be known as various standard cosmological paradigms evolve mm -hmm. and and move forward? Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to be you know part of the group of people who developed this, you know, developed the standard model of cosmology. Right. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have any grand designs in mind. Uh, and it was the um, children's crusade. <laughs> there were really no senior people in the field. Now, now I'll mention one person uh, whose work, I think, went a long way to legitimizing it. Yeah. Uh, that's Steven Weinberg. So Steve wrote some of the early papers about cosmology. He wrote a book, Gravitation and Cosmology. Sure. And, but that but, was, that was gravitation. Yeah, it was mostly gravitation, cosmology, but it was clear he was interested right, in it. Right. And he wrote papers on neutrinos as dark matter, yeah. which I thought was a very, to me personally, it was a very influential paper. And his book, popular book, The First Three Minutes. So right. suddenly, you know, well, you know, if Steve Weinberg does it, it can't be too terrible, right? So even though he didn't really work very much in that area, he legitimized it, I guess, yeah, in some, yeah. in some he, ways. He, he was by his presence. just about the only senior established person to work in that field hmm. at, at, at that time, in, yeah, you know, sure. in, in sort of in the 1970s. Okay. So uh, you, you and your colleagues were part of this children's crusade. It was a wave. We, Uncle, I, Uncle I was Steve. caught in the wave. <laughs> and uh, sort of it was... Uh, a very exciting time because new ideas like, well, phase transitions, inflation, dark matter, things like that were uh, cosmic strings were very big. You know, th these ideas, it seemed like you could wake up in the morning and have a new idea and write a paper that afternoon. Whatever happened with cosmic strings anyway? Is anybody talking about that stuff? Well, they've been abandoned as, causing, as leading to structure, yeah. large-scale structures, seeding galaxies and other large-scale structures. Why? Uh, because the, they, didn't, they do not predict the feature seen in the cosmic microwave background radiation, oh. in the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's good reason. And, and, and this is an example of how experiment and theory come together. Yeah. So in the, uh, you know, before COBE and things like that, COBE uh, discovered the fluctuations in the microwave background radiation. And sort of after COBE, they started mapping out the details of the, of the uh, fluctuations in the microwave background radi radiation. Cosmic strings made one prediction, one general prediction, and perturbations from inflation or seed perturbations made another prediction, and they were strikingly different, and the experiment settled it. So cosmic strings did not seed the growth of galaxies and clusters of galaxies and other large-scale structure. That was the reason they were originally proposed, or much of the motivation, but it, it's still around and uh, we could have a cosmic string renaissance. Maybe super strings are like cosmic strings, or maybe they're around, but don't do that, but do something different. Mm. In, uh, an example is normal, what we now say, say is super string theory. Mm. Originally, it was proposed as a theory of the strong interactions. Mm. That didn't work. But then it was realized, well, it doesn't work there, but perhaps it can work as a, as a theory that incorporates gravity. Right. But of course, there had to be some results. There right, had to right. be the you know, there, cancellation. There had to be all sorts of mm -hmm. things that actually made people excited about yeah. it, presumably. Um, I, so 
I don't want to keep uh, mentioning we, we there's a wide variety of people who have different views on inflation mm -hmm. as part of the children's crusade uh, I'd like to know your story about uh, how it developed and what mm -hmm. you particularly think its strengths and weaknesses are now and what the future is for yeah so I, I think the uh, the idea was in the air um, you know, many of us are kicking ourselves that we did not um, come up with the idea for inflation, of inflation. Um, and Alan Guth uh, wrote a very influential paper on this argument about, you know, who exactly was the first. But to me, to my mind, the first I really saw it crystallize as a theory I could understand, and it was Alan Guth's paper. And I had been working on similar things, thinking about similar things while at Caltech with uh, a graduate student there, Stephen Wolfram, oh, really? who went on to do oh, Mathematica, uh, Mathematica yeah. right. So uh, Stephen was uh, a very young... Wasn't he like 12 or something when he goes PhD? Well, he, he, I think he was 16 or something. <laughs> he, he wasn't quite shaving yet. But I remember him driving, not very well, but I remember him driving. He used to scare the hell out of me when he, when he would drive me someplace. So he must have been over 16, but, uh, but he was uh, under 18. Uh, so we were talking about it, and uh, we, we had this idea of a phase transition leading to an exponential, a rapid growth of the scale factor of, of the universe. So Stephen decided that uh, uh, this, you know, we, we didn't really understand what we were doing, like Alan did. So, you know, uh, but we made a terrible mistake. We went and talked to uh, Richard Feynman about it. Oh, really? And the he said it was a bad idea? The terrible mistake <laughs> is he immediately pointed the problem with the original idea of inflation. How do you end it? So that was the problem in Guth's original paper that the work of Steinhardt and Linde and Albrecht, et cetera, uh, solved. And uh, you know, we said, we don't know. So we said, well, you know, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it might be an interesting idea, but it doesn't work. So you know, we could have, if we had, in hindsight, if we had been as smart as Alan Guth, we would have said, we would have seen the genius of the idea and admitted that it doesn't work, but let's put it out there. And, but you know, it's... Uh, That's more tactical than being smart. Things. I mean, it depends on how you define smart. But no, I mean, no, I, I, would, I would say it's smart, it's genius. You know, a, a, Alan's... Alan had a much deeper appreciation of what it could do than we did. So, yeah, but, so I always now, when I always warn people, don't listen too much to senior people. <laughs> you know, because when they come to me and say, do you think this is a good idea? I'll say, well, don't listen to me. Right. But, yeah, maybe not, or maybe so. Right. Because even if their criticism is right, it doesn't mean it's necessarily the end right. of the day. Right, that's right. Okay, so, and Feynman did this immediately, eh? You can yeah, see it yeah. right off the... Uh, and Toadie was a clever guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, did, you, did you interact with him at all when you were at Caltech? Well, not very much. I don't even know if he knew... I, I don't think he knew my name, but for some reason, he called me the professor. You know, I was just a, a, a postdoc, you know. He's seen hundreds <laughs> of postdocs. But he, you know, he'd see me in a call and say, hi, professor. <laughs> you know, he, he could have said, hi. You know, he could have t told me terrible things. Hey, he spoke to me, you know. <laughs> he could have told me, you know, you're the ugliest person I've ever seen. Feynman spoke to me. <laughs> you're the dumbest person. He spoke to me. You know, so. <laughs> so, so you, 
so you were there, of course, right, right there when uh, when Alan Guth makes his mm -hmm. uh, puts out his paper. Guth gave and, 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 a seminar at Caltech, yes. and 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 then there are the problems that are solved and so forth. And so your uh, uh, describe your your feelings and your your future work, and as you see the field actually evolve, as you see as inflation, there are problems there. Are, Solutions to the problems, there are more problems, there are solutions leading up to the present day now. Because mm -hmm. Paul was very critical, as you know. Um, my understanding is you are considerably less critical. It's hard to be more critical than Paul <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to these things. So give, give me a sense of um, uh, your perspective on, on the situation, where we are today, your confidence uh, in inflationary theory, and what you think the future will hold. Well, um, inflation is a, a great phenomenological success without an underlying theory or understanding of what, what's at the guts of it. So let me do, be just a little bit uh, more technical there. Please. So there is a quantum field, it's a scalar field, there's a quantum field that uh, people say drive inflation, cause inflation. Uh, it, it's called the inflaton. Not coincidentally. No, it's a great name. You have to have a great name. Uh, but who is the inflaton? Where does it come from? And I, am a, I, I work a lot on inflation, but I won't be completely sold on the idea of inflation until there is some fundamental theory that the inflaton, or the, the theory that the model of inflation can be embedded in. Right, because it seems somewhat ad hoc, uh, I mean, other than that, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, for a long time, I would say, until a couple of years ago, I would say, well, everything depends upon the scalar field, but by the way, we have never discovered a fundamental scalar field. Finally, we mm -hmm. discovered the Higgs. Yeah. So perhaps there, is, there are fundamental scalar fields. So that, that, that's something at least. But yeah. you know, for 30 years, people were writing models of inflation based upon a type of particle, a scalar field, mm. of, of which there was no example in nature. And, and that, that gave a little pause for concern. The Higgs was discovered, so maybe it's not such a, such a terrible idea. So I think there's, in inflation, there's something about it that will survive. It may not be in exactly the simple, in hindsight, it may be naive, that uh, idea that we have now. But there's something about it that I think will survive. Yeah. So give me your thoughts. Um, and this is supposed to be an experience where you should feel free to speculate to your heart's content. Uh, because one of the things I'm trying to do is to get um, people who are non-specialists to not only have a sense of what the current ideas and opinions of people who are specialists are, but also their processes mm -hmm. and their lifestyle and what they do all day and, and, and their fears and frustrations and so forth. So we talked a little bit about inflation. There are these two big elephants in the room of dark matter and dark energy and a sense of um, uh, certainly widespread speculation as to what's really going on. As somebody who's been at the forefront of this for a very long time and seen these things uh, mature, I guess is one way to mm -hmm. put them, uh, uh, what is your sense of the, of the current lay of the land and what is your particular uh, orientation in terms of what you think 
the best explanation is, or the correct yeah. explanation. Forget about the best explanation. Right. Give, me, give me the truth. Yes, give okay. me what you think is actually out there. Uh, uh, we have something that we always say a standard cosmological model. And uh, paper after paper talks about the standard cosmological model. In some sense, it's remarkable. You can account for many, many observations on the basis of this standard cosmological model. And again, looking back 20 or 30 years ago, I would have never imagined that we could have a model and coupled with the observations that we do, large-scale structure, distribution of galaxies, microwave background, I mean, tremendous right. number of observations that either can be explained by the standard model or we can see a way, maybe the calculations are too hard to do, but are, are compatible with the standard model. Just to interrupt you for a sec. So my sense is it's one of the greatest transitions to go from just a generation before when what you talked about with Alan Sandage and these graphs and these curves and everyone thinking, well, or at least most people, cosmology is all metaphysics and it's mm -hmm. all hand-waving and all the rest of that, to one of the most data-driven, precise, uh, incredibly technically detailed, not just mathematically technical detail, but in terms of correspondence with observation, maybe in the history of science, I don't know, but certainly that, that's going on today. It's, it's a remarkable it's, transition. It's been a breathtakingly rapid transition from marginal to respectable. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in more fact, than even respectable. more respectable yeah. sort of as a leading, exactly. uh, leading idea. Right, as a paradigmatic case of this is the way, you know, observations could and should be done. It's just fantastic. So, you know, going back in my own experience in 1979, I would have, if somebody asked me what you were doing, I would say, well, cosmolo <laughs> cosmology, but, but, but don't, I'm a cosmologist, but don't, don't tell anybody. You know, it's something, you know, what if my mother finds out I'm yeah. doing cosmology? It's just again like and, when you were back in the library, you know, look at it, look at it. <laughs> but, but still, I don't know when, 50, maybe with the Kobe uh, observations, that really obviously turned things around. But yeah. 15, certainly 20 years later, you know, it was pro, and people were saying, "How can we hire cosmologists? You know, mm -hmm. what what can we do?" Anyway, sorry, I cut you off because yeah. you were you were talking right. about the, the the standard cosmological model and its correspondence mm -hmm. with data and the, the wealth of data right. that we have. Right. I, it, it staggers me. Yeah. I, I you know sometimes I just shake my head, and now of course, uh, the graduate students and postdocs and young faculty members, that's the life they grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kids today, you know, they don't, yeah, they yeah. know nothing. <laughs> so let, let's. They don't know what it was like. We had to, you know, build <laughs> models in the snow and things like that. <laughs> Walk 17 miles through the snow Uphill. to build your, both ways to build your models. Um, let's talk a little bit about dark matter. Okay. Let's let's be specific and give me a sense of uh, briefly some of the historical origins of this, mm -hmm. where we are today, and what you think the future will yeah. hold. Oh, right. Also, in not only in terms of, of theoretical possibilities, but in terms of experimental uh, detections uh, or, mm -hmm. or hope for experimental detections, direct mm -hmm. detections that we're, we're in the midst of he's trying to construct. That's a very yeah. strange sentence yeah. that I don't think it actually worked very well, but anyway, you get what I'm trying <laughs> I, to say. I, I get it, I get it. <laughs> well, well, going back to the idea of a standard cosmology, this idea and this acceptance has to be tempered by the fact that 95% of the universe is dark matter and dark energy that we don't understand. Mm. So in some sense, it's thrilling that we have this standard model that can do so much, looks so powerful, but yet it's scary that there's a 
big gigantic hole that's dark matter and dark energy that we don't understand. So let me talk about dark matter. Now the idea of dark matter is not new. It's really something that was pointed out by astronomers as early as maybe the 1920s or so, in the mid-20s. This Zwicky guy or Zwicky. something? Fritz Zwicky, okay. who uh, uh, was in fact at Caltech uh, when he did most of this work, but he was Swiss. And he, uh, it's an interesting little fact, he, he was sort of a person who caused a lot of mischief, a lot of trouble. Oh, really? And people, he was not a not the most lovable, cuddly person. Oh, he was Swiss. He was right. right. He, he had all the lovable warmth of you would expect of someone who builds a Swiss a cuckoo clocks or something. I, I don't know. He, he wasn't Heidi's grandfather. Where goes our Swiss audience, by the way? Yeah, I know. Boom, I know. He's he, gone. He, he wasn't Heidi's grandfather. Um, but uh, so so he was a troublemaker. But when he was a student at ETH in Zurich. The person he lived next door to caused even more trouble. That was Vladimir Lenin. Okay, so um, you know, astronomers starting in the 1920s started to be able to measure how much mass is out there in, in galaxies, around us, in, uh, in our local environment. And uh, they did this not uh, by measuring the velocity of things. So, you know, we can determine the mass of the sun by measuring the velocity of the Earth about the sun. The sun produces a gravitational potential that causes the Earth to move. Something is causing a gravitational potential that's causing uh, galaxies to spin faster than you might imagine. So astronomers look through telescopes, see, measure the rotation velocity of galaxies, and say, how much mass do you have to have to have the galaxy spin that fast and not fly apart? And it's much larger than the amount of stars that they see or anything else that they see. Something's missing. Um, th this is what we call dark matter. And this was uh, discussed and mentioned by astronomers in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s. Uh, I don't believe physicists paid any attention to it. Uh, Lemaitre, who was one of the fathers of the Big Bang Theory, George Lemaitre, he wrote about uh, dark matter. Uh, uh, he, I think he used the term dark matter, hmm. and but you know didn't say much about it. It was one of these things that there was something out there that that was sort of flashing. Gee, this is important, but no no one paid attention to it. And then in the 1970s. There were uh, a group of astronomers, Vera Rubin, as a person who comes to mind largely credited with this, mm -hmm. who just made better and better observations to the point where the issue became so strikingly difficult to imagine, oh, astronomers will figure it out. It, it's not really something interesting, that, that it really shook people up and say, well, there must be something there. Mm -hmm. And so my thesis uh, in graduate school was about dark matter, the idea of neutrinos as dark matter. These were not the little, little wimpy neutrinos we have now, but imagine there's a neutrino which has a mass of a million electron volts or a billion electron volts. That could be dark matter. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Weinberg and uh, Ben Lee were doing similar issues, uh, similar papers at the same time. 
Um, so th th that to me was really my entry into cosmology, worrying about how neutrinos could be the dark matter. So this is, and this has gotten more and more attention, and people have come up with ideas of that, that the idea that the standard model may not be complete, that there has to be something beyond the standard model. So the idea that there's dark matter out there that we don't see, some kind of particle that this interacts only very feebly with the normal standard model particles, so a new, new type of particle. Yeah. Um, this is physics beyond the standard model of particle physics. And that's attracted more and more attention. And it became, it became um, uh, apparent that there were experiments you could do to test this idea. So if the particle was produced in the primordial soup of the early universe, then if we can reproduce primordial soup, we may be able to produce it and detect it here. Right. And the place where we produce primordial soup is in high energy collisions at accelerators like Fermilab or CERN. Right. So they make primordial soup, perhaps they're making WIMPs. And this idea of dark matter, which holds galaxies together or other large scale structures, connected with an elementary particle, I loved because my original loves were astronomy, the big things, sure. and particle physics, the little things. Well, it's like a new form of your thesis in a way, right? I mean, you're, well, it, 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 it's a new form of my 10-year-old 10, 10 dream to study both of these right. things. I didn't really, no one, I guess, realized that there could be a deep and profound connection. Right. And uh, so it's, it's something, I, I just came along at the right time. So. With dark matter, my understanding, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is there's the dark matter that was associated with uh, rotation rates of galaxies mm -hmm. and the, the, the Swiss guy's wiki right. and Vera Rubin and all mm -hmm. the rest of this kind of stuff. Um, and then there's uh, the dark matter that's associated with larger scale structure. There's the dark matter associated with the necessary, um, uh, the necessity of of, of clumping uh, from the Big Bang on a, on on, a, yes. on time scales that are appropriate to our own and so forth, and and the first one can be dealt with through other techniques such as MOND, and and I'd like you to comment on that, whereas. Uh, the second one is quite different in that respect. Is that a fair summation of, of the lay of the land? Or, of course, from your perspective, it's all the same thing. I'm just, I'm just saying logically, I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm right. making a distinction. So it's very um, seductive to imagine there's one explanation that describes many phenomena on many scales. Right. So as you, as you say, dark matter is seen on many scales, from sort of uh, around a, a local stellar neighborhood. Yeah our galaxy, small um, uh, dwarf galaxies, uh, clusters of galaxies, groups of galaxies, up to the structure, large, largest scale structure that we see from the microwave background and how that forms. It's conceivable and possible that, is the, that one particle, you know, one ring to rule them out, one particle to explain all of these. And that's a very seductive idea course it may not be right. Yeah. You know, the, the, we have examples in science where we thought one thing could explain uh, many different phenomena and it turns out not to be true. Yeah. 
Uh, so, but I, until there's evidence otherwise, I'm inclined to believe that the dark matter is not modified gravity, MOND, sure. modified Newtonian dynamics, that it is uh, some yet to be discovered elementary particle. It's also very uh, seductive to think about that because you can think of ways that that can be tested yeah. in the laboratory. Again, producing them at high energy colliders like CERN. Or perhaps they have some feeble interaction that if you did a sensitive enough experiment, remove all the background, you could actually detect the relic uh, dark matter around us. Or perhaps today, this dark matter is accumulating, accreting into the center of our galaxy or other centers of other galaxies and annihilating, producing some signal that we can see today. So there's a lot of handles and ways to test this. And this has been going on, this idea of pushing this frontier, testing these, this idea for uh, probably 35 years. And finally, we're at the position, at the point where we should be seeing something. So what do you think is going to happen? So give me, give me a fearless prediction for the next 10 years, because there are a lot of these experiments that are starting to come online now. And, and what do you think is actually going to happen? So I've always been absolutely consistent that within five years we'll have evidence. And I've been <laughs> saying that for 30 years. So I, my consistency is something to be admired. Okay, so tell me, so, okay, so, so granted, the, that, granted that you're, you're, you're a tenacious fellow and that you're consistent. But, but I actually I'm changing, it's evolving. My, uh, what is the phrase? My thoughts on this matter are evolving. That's very political. It's your years of, of the dean, your two, two years <laughs> as, as a dean now. Right, <laughs> right, right. Um, so my ideas are evolving. I am, the jury's not in yet, but right now I am surprised that the LHC They've discovered the Higgs boson. I'm not surprised about that. Yeah. Um, they've, discussed, they've seen nothing else. In particular, they haven't seen any evidence for supersymmetry, right. which is something that many, many, many people expected right. to be seen. Right. It's more of a surprise that they haven't seen it to the high energy physics community than if they had seen it. So they're about to turn the LHC back on again. They're about they're to turn the LHC back on again at roughly twice the energy. So what, do you, what, do you, what are your fearless predictions? I'm afraid that uh, two years from now there will still be nothing seen and that we will abandon the idea that the dark matter is a weakly interacting massive particle or a whip. It doesn't mean it's not a particle. It means it's not, it doesn't really have its origin in the primordial soup produced by thermal collisions in the early universe. And if the LHC doesn't see any sign of new physics, not necessarily discover a WIMP, but some sort of new physics, physics beyond the standard model of particle physics, in two years, then I think the, it could be a, um, you know, the, a scale tipping moment and people will really start looking at other ideas for dark matter. And there are many other ideas, maybe even uh, modified Newtonian dynamics. Mm. So just so that I understand you correctly, because my understanding, my recollection of what you just said was, I'm afraid that if they don't see evidence of dark matter at the LHC within two years. Well, uh, let me, so not just evidence of dark matter, but evidence of some new physics evidence of supersymmetry. Supersymmetry is an example. It right, might be something Beyond the standard model right. physics. So yes, if, if, if they don't... So let me, let me rephrase. So my understanding of what you said was, worse to the effect, or, or 
more than words to the effect. My understanding was um, if they don't, I'm afraid that if they don't see evidence of beyond the standard model physics in two years, then, and there were a whole bunch of other statements, but what I'm trying to pin you down on, so I understand that you, you're afraid. So I'm well, taking that literally. Are you, are you, you, I understand that you're fearful yeah. and that if they don't find anything, then, uh, then, then there are issues. Um, but do you actually think they will find something or do you not think they will find something? Uh, you had to put yeah. money on okay. it. So I know that uh, this, the electrons that are on this digital recording will be worn out in two years. And you don't have to worry about this. This is not gotcha yeah, yeah. journalism. So, okay. I'll explain this to you. So I'll look at the camera and yeah. say the LHC will not see anything beyond the standard model. And the um, idea that the dark matter is this weakly interacting massive particle will fall from favor, or the models, the ideas that how it can be produced will become so baroque and convoluted that people will say there must be a simpler explanation. So do you realize you're the second person who's done these programs who's looked directly at the camera? The other person was someone who did Global Islam. <laughs> look, look <right> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> religious economies. Um, well, that's I'm making good. a I, prediction. I, I, I like, I like, I'm going to have to own it, so, you know. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I think that's good. That's, that's what I'm trying to push you to. Now, I realize that you guys aren't in the business of, you're not seers, you're not in the business of making mm -hmm. predictions, but it's, I think it's fun. We're not economists or anything like that. Well, economists always make retrodictions, right? <laughs> they, that's my understanding, they don't actually make predictions. Um, so moving on to, so that's very helpful. Thank you for that. Um, I have a couple more questions uh, about the dark stuff. So now I want to go to dark energy, mm -hmm. and I want to ask you a similar sort of question about what you think we will know uh, and what you think this thing actually is. Okay. So uh, dark energy, or the phenomenon that's attributed to dark energy, is something that we see only on one scale. So let's imagine the simplest possibility that dark energy is Einstein's cosmological constant. The idea that uh, every cubic inch of space has a structure, has some mass density associated with it. Very, very small, but there's a lot of cubic inches of space out there. And uh, this causes an effective, it, this affects the expansion rate of the universe. Now, I think modern cosmology began, although it may not have been appreciated at the time, it began with the 1929 discovery of Hubble of the expansion of the universe. And uh, what Hubble did was to measure the expansion velocity, the expansion rate of the universe today. Now, until 1998, that's sort of the only information we had, the expansion rate of the universe today. Uh, starting in 1998, with the work of two groups that discovered the acceleration of the universe, the Nobel Prize winning groups, then uh, we were able to look out in space, back in time, and deduce the expansion rate of the universe in the past. Now, the expectation that everyone had, although some people say, oh, no, no, I knew it all along, but the expectation that everyone would admit to is that the expansion rate today is slower than the expansion velocity in the past. That's because as the universe expands, you would expect gravity of all the massive objects to pull things back together. Right, serve as a break. Right. But that's not what was discovered. It was an acceleration of the universe. 
And whatever is producing this apparent acceleration of the universe, we call dark energy. And again, the simplest thing is that there's some energy density associated with empty space. Now, um, so I have to admit to my own prejudice here, and scientists don't like to admit to, to prejudice, but in fact, we do have scientific prejudice in what we, some ideas to me are like the fingernails on the chalkboard, right? That's uh, enough. Please don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hold the microphone up there so people get the idea of exactly what I mean. D dark matter to me is, it doesn't bother. I don't lose sleep over it. I say, oh, this is a great opportunity. There's some idea. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Dark energy to me are the fingernails on the chalkboard. It just drives me nuts. It, I don't like it. I don't like it. I admit that it's a prejudice, but uh, I've never been wrong before. Never? Never. Cool. Uh, <laughs> well, my wife thinks otherwise. <laughs> wow, what does she know? But, uh, <laughs> she knows a lot. Uh, she, she knows everything, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, so I just cannot, it's, it's, it's the bone that sticks in my throat. So why? Energy. So why is dark energy so much harder for you to swallow I than dark matter? I can't, I don't have a good explanation. It's not a logical thing. So I, 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 it's not that I say the observations are wrong. Sure. It's, uh, although I did for many, <laughs> for at least a couple of years. <laughs> I said, well, there must be some other effect in the observations. Uh, it, I just can't swallow it. And I think we all have these prejudices, these ideas, you know, that, that we just can't swallow. I don't think Paul Steinhardt can swallow the idea of inflation as he invented it. Mm. Um, some people can't swallow the idea of super strings. Uh, you know, they just, again, it's the fingernails on the, it's an aesthetic thing, it's a matter of taste. So I, okay, so this, I think there's something very different or a different interpretation of the observations. Now, one example might be uh, a modification of general relativity. It could be that Einstein did not have the last word on mm -hmm. gravity. That would not be surprising, but what would be surprising is if we see the first indication that there's something beyond Einstein's theory of gravity on the very largest length scales. Right. We would expected it before sure. on the very smallest scale. So it's sort of the opposite way, but in hindsight, 20 years from now, when we understand what's beyond Einstein's theory of gravity, people would say, oh, these uh, people like Rocky who started this field a long time ago, eh, they got old and they couldn't, affect, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't accept this new idea. That may happen. Um, or it may be that it's something different. I think dark matter, to me, is understandable by a particle or something like that. I don't think it's going to really fundamentally change and say, wow, we should have been thinking about something else. Right. Dark energy, I think, would be, if there is a revolution, if there is a real break in the standard model of cosmology, it will come because of dark energy. But at some level, couldn't one put it this way? So maybe I'm completely off base, but my sense is um, if you're somebody who puts an emphasis on the beauty and the evocative power of general relativity. Mm -hmm. And you look at that as, as something which is uh, whatever, a pinnacle of 
of human achievement and also happens to reflect reality. It's and a so beautiful, forth. complete, you know, not quantum, but it's a beautiful, complete, conceptual, simple idea. Right. Why based, screw around with it? And, and, and based, based upon real physical principles, equivalence principle, and so forth and so on. And, um, and, and then there's also particle physics, a standard model, blah, 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 blah. So you've got these things. Let's forget about stuff like quantum gravity and all that for the time being, um, or maybe forever. Um, and, and you say to yourself, okay, there's this extra stuff, which maybe it interacts weakly, but it clumps together. It's gravitational-like. It doesn't really mm -hmm. mess with the general theory of relativity. I don't really know all the mechanisms to it. Maybe there's some particle stuff that's going on. Or it's complicated. It doesn't really bother the general theory of relativity. Whereas dark energy seems like a horse of a different color. And that, sure, you can say, well, there's a cosmological constant, and you can throw in whatever value you want, and it would be nice if you could make that correspond somehow with, <laughs> with, <laughs> with the value. observed, right? <laughs> but um, but it's, it does seem to fly in the face of, uh, uh, of the the ethos and the power of general, of, of general relativity. Is that, would that be yes. a fair way to describe yes. Your, yes. your anxiety at all? Yes, yes. Okay. That, 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 that is well put. General relativity is such a beautiful structure. The standard model of particle physics is also has a beauty of its own, but the structure of it, there's nothing like the equivalence principle that tells us the details of the structure. So in general relativity, you state the equivalence principle, and then it, you know, it only took Einstein eight years or nine years to work out the implications of it. I do it in an hour in class. Now, having already seen it. Because I'm, oh, no, I'm, I'm that much smarter, you see. It took him nine years. I, I can do it in, ten, in an hour. Uh, uh, but it's, uh, it, it, to me, it's different. Yeah. I, I can, I can and again, you know, I... I think it's okay to have prejudices if you recognize them. Sure. I mean, because you're not, you're not saying, I'm not going to go to a seminar, I'm not going to read a paper right. that has this That's particular right. view. You're saying, this is my view, this is my bias, and until such a time as I have reason to believe otherwise, mm -hmm. I will cling on to this. I think that's... Not trying to be overly agreeable, right. but that's, yeah. I mean, you're a human being after all. You have to have some sort of biases. I want to talk a little bit, uh, first of all, I want to thank you very much for your time. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about something a little bit different. So you've written uh, a popular book, Blind Watchers of the Sky. Um, available online. Available in all bookstores everywhere. Even no coffee table yeah. is complete without one. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, without trying to sound unduly sycophantic, this book was extremely well received. Uh, and and I, I, it's very hard to find anybody who says anything bad about this book at all. And yet, you haven't written another. And no. this, was, this was like 17 years ago. So this goes very much against the standard physics popularization thing. Like I would have thought some agent would have got their hooks into you and said, look, this Rocky Cole guy, he can write these books. He's got a sense of humor. He's able to tell stories. I mean, you, should you. Be, you must have been approached by people writing, you should be writing 30 of these sorts of books. Well, but people have asked me about it. And you know, I have been approached. So I'll tell you a little bit about how the, the book started. So I was teaching a course at the university. Many books come from courses that people teach. Mm. I had developed this course over a series of years at the University of Chicago on, you know, I wanted to teach not only our present model of cosmology, but how we came to develop ideas about cosmology. What is the history of the development? Sure. And I thought that uh, this, this was to non-science majors, people who are not particularly 
it's a large range, but pe people who are not driven by curiosity about science, but they are driven by curiosity about people. And if you can tell the story of the people, you can teach the science a little bit yeah. to tell the story. And uh, so when they weren't looking, I would teach them physics. And, <laughs> Snuck it in the back yeah, door. Yeah. So uh, I had been teaching this course uh, but about every year for about six years or so. And you know, there, there's a saying, you know, the first year you teach the course, you learn the material. The second time you teach the course, the students learn the material. <laughs> the third time you teach the course, nobody learns anything. But so anyway, I, I was sort of worn out teaching this. So finally the chair says, okay, you don't have to teach this for a couple of years. And I said, ah, oh, I'm so relieved. And then turned around and wrote the book that was based on the course. I don't know why I did it. I just had to get it out of me. Wow. And uh, I, I, I guess, you know, I guess I had planned that it would be published, but it, I didn't approach a publisher with a proposal. I'd, and then it's within... very a, strange. Have you done other things like this in your life? That's I a very weird so. thing but to do. But within a month, I had finished the book. You know, it just came... I couldn't <laughs> stop it. I couldn't <laughs> stop it. So I, uh, I, I had written uh, with Michael Turner a textbook, yeah. and that, that was sort of a struggle. Uh, you know, it wasn't these things that, you know, it took us much more than a month. And sure. maybe working with two people is harder to do things than working with one. But Wow, it was a very different sort of book. Yeah, it is a different, it's very technical, and we had to uh, take a lot of care. And also, in that textbook, we were writing the papers as we were writing the books. So the, the book was evolving as our knowledge changed. Uh, but... You know, I, I found it a great joy, and uh, I think I'll do it again. I don't remember how I had the time to do it. Well, in a month. I mean, that was a pretty... Yeah. Maybe you just did nothing else in that month. I mean, Yeah, you know. I, I, I didn't do much else, but, you know, it, uh, no one knew I was writing... I, my wife knew I was writing the yeah. book. Well, she knows everything. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> she, she writes books also, and oh. uh, I, I've discovered the only thing more difficult than writing a book is being married to someone who's writing a book. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, so, uh, two two questions. So, have you did, have you ever gone back to teaching the course after having yes, had this? Yes, yes, I have. And 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 you used the book? Uh, yeah, I, I used the book. I, I don't really follow the book too much. Uh, for a while, uh, you know, one student complained. You know, the the lectures really follow the book. I said, no, no, the book follows the lectures. <laughs> And, and have you thought about writing another, maybe in somewhat different circumstances where you don't have this ejection of <laughs> knowledge that comes out, but I mean, have you thought of, of writing a, another popular book? Because it was, I think people did appreciate, I must confess, yeah. I haven't read the book. I've heard about it. I'd like to read it. Uh, have you bought it? I, that's all that matters. I've, <laughs> I appreciate that. I will, I, I have, I will soon. Um, but, um, but my understanding is, and I've looked at brief excerpts of it, um, not only is it a broad description of historical traditions at all different levels, right, of, the, of, uh, of a solar system level, of a galactic level, of a cosmological level, and so forth, but a, but a chrono chronological level as well throughout time, but it also has your sense of humor in there. It, it really has a different, refreshing sense. It, it doesn't read, at least the bits that I've read, it doesn't read like a textbook. Well, I, I, in fact, I have thought, so the, the book sort of ends with, you know, it, treating modern cosmology just su very superficially in, in the last chapter. Yeah. So I have thought about writing a book which is more personal. My experience is being part of this wave of starting a new field in some sense. Yeah. And uh, you know, talking about the people and things like that. 
but um, I don't know if it's, I, I, I think eventually I will do that. I don't know, n not about what I've done or, or any particular work, but well, as somebody who was what, there, what as the field done. was you know, evolving. I was there, and, and I don't claim that I had this enormous influence or it would have been different without me. Other people would have been there, but you know, I was there. I knew the people, and uh, it, was, it was such an exciting time. Yes. It is. It still is. It still is. But but the you know we so um, in 1983, uh, Leon Letterman, who was director of Fermilab at the time, hired me and along with Michael Turner to start an astro, a theoretical astrophysics group at a national laboratory. This is really bringing particle physics and um, cosmology together. I was 32 years old, and Mike Soda, he was 35 or something like that. Uh, and, you know, being 32 years old, and he sort of gave us the keys to the kingdom, saying, okay, hire some postdocs, get some students, hire some staff members, go form this group. And Mike and I sort of looked at each other and said, is he crazy? <laughs> <laughs> He's trusting us? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, it was, it was an incredibly exciting time of building something that really hadn't been built before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the people who came through and, you know, witnessing, you know, all these things that happened, a new field being born, playing some role in it. And uh, I'm very proud, you know, in the Willie Fowler tradition, again, of fostering, making an environment and appreciating what my students and postdocs have done. And many of them have gone on and, and have done wonderful things. And, I'm, you know, that's the thing I'm most proud of rather than anything I've done. So I, I'll write a book about that now. Now, my colleagues probably have a different memory of exactly how things happen. Well, the hell with them. Let them write their own books. That, you know? that, 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 that's <laughs> it. But, but uh, I, I, I still speak to them. They still speak to me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to be a tell-all because, you know, there's not much to tell. But uh, I'm sure I'll get a lot of uh, corrections. No, no. And it's true. So my wife actually is in history of science. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the scientist's memories are unreliable. No, but everyone's memories are unreliable, but they're important, I, I think. And it's important to share that mm -hmm. whole process with, with people. So I would certainly urge you to write that. It sounds like you're, you're moving in that direction. It sounds like you're reasonably convinced. It's, it's, it's the next book I'll write. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. I have one final request, um, mm -hmm. if I may, and, and that is a question more about pedagogy. You talked about being a supervisor, you talked about being a mentor, how important that was to you, the experience of Willie Fowler and so forth. Would you have any specific recommendations to teachers or professors, not only at a, at a university level, but at a, at a high school level in terms of what they might do differently or better to recommend their students fulfill their potential, maximize their curiosity, anything like that? Is there, as somebody who is not only engaged in research, but who has a, a broader view on a societal level of science and society and teaching and so forth, are there any recommendations you might make? If I could sum it up in one word, it's passion. Have passion and a love of what you do and convey that to the students and try to ignite in them a passion. I'll, I'll give one, and, and don't, don't be dismayed about curriculum and all the, these other things. It's the passion. And if the person doesn't learn everything in the first 12 chapters of the textbook, that's all right. If you can uh, trigger a passion, 
uh, I, I give a lot of lectures to uh, high school teachers. And a few years ago, I w it was, a, I forget where I was, uh, someplace in, in some state. And uh, it was about 25 or 30 high school science teachers. And then we sat down to dinner, uh, and sitting next to me was a recent graduate in the biological sciences who was teaching biology. So I, I turned to, you know, I asked her just over dinner conversation, uh, so what excites you about biology? And she told some story about, you know, slime mold, or, or something like, something that didn't particularly interest me. I didn't excited think it was her. But you could see the passion in her eyes, yeah. the enthusiasm. It was beautiful. And I said, well, you teach this to your students. And she said, oh, it's not in the curriculum. And it's a terrible myth. It, they miss something terrible to see the passion and enthusiasm. So impart passion. Yeah. Anything else doesn't matter. You know, the, the 10 years, 15 years from now, it doesn't matter whether they can reconstruct a ladder leaning against the wall or a, a pulleys or something like that. 10 minutes from now, I may not matter. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But an appreciation and a passion. If you can do that, please, please do that. If, if, if I talk to high school, college teachers. Yeah. Anything I missed? Anything you want to add? I don't think so. Thank you. It's a wide-ranging conversation. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Astrophysics and Cosmology, along with separate discussions with Justin Curry, Roger Penrose, Paul Steinhardt, and Scott Tremaine. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.